All right. I was uh, speaking with uh, one of our professors of social work at Cal Baptist this last week. He's also a pastor. He's a pastor of a Methodist church. And so he was talking about uh, uh, All Saints Day and then having to get ready for Advent. And I said, you guys have it lucky. You only do the Christian Holy Days. We do the Jewish and the Christian Holy Days. And he says, I don't even want to think about it, right? So uh, the reality is that uh, we have a lot of celebrations. And so the uh, uh, I decided I would not speak on uh, uh, the issue of of All Saints Day today, I'd go back to Matthew because we have been trying to get through Matthew most of the year and keep getting interrupted with uh, certain uh, holy days, which I think are great. But I think that the liturgy says what this day is about as we remember those who died for the faith and those who died in the faith, anticipating the day when we will all be reunited. So we're going to go back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Our discussions in Matthew, and we're going to do the same thing we've done. I'll talk a little bit, then we'll stop. If you have something you want to discuss, we'll do that. And then I'll go back on again, and the tape will have the interruption in that. Uh, Our discussions in Matthew have traced several themes throughout that gospel book. uh, That of little or great faith, or getting Jesus wrong. Uh, Text and tradition, where there is a... uh, uh, a disconnection between the two, and manifestation of the kingdom, which was seen through the teachings and the miracles uh, accomplished by Jesus among the remnant of Israel. He also speaks in parables so that those who have eyes and ears to see and hear will see and hear, but those who don't do not. Remember that uh, much of the Gospels are tied to the book of Isaiah where God uh, placed a blinder in part on Israel, so that they would not understand, in part to open the way for the Gentiles, but then ultimately to bring both Gentile and Jew uh, to salvation through the Messiah of Israel. This week we're going to look at the manifestations of the kingdom, and I've titled the sermon, Pride, Temptation, and Forgiveness. I considered calling it Humility and Forgiveness, because these are the characteristics that are manifest in the kingdom. Uh, And clearly taught here. But the struggle of faith is to do this in the face of temptation. And that temptation is often towards pride and being unforgiving. So we're going to discuss those as we look at the uh, text of chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. So we begin in Matthew 18 with the uh, first six verses uh, where uh, the disciples uh, begin to question Jesus. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted or changed, the word says, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that passage 
ends talking about the offending of one of these little ones. But I want to talk about this text. This is a well-known teaching of Jesus, but it is not well taught and it's often misunderstood. Uh, We have heard much in the commentaries and sermons about childlike faith, that Jesus is talking about childlike faith. He is not talking about childlike faith at all. He is uh, talking about the status of a child. In the biblical times, the status of children was uh, almost non-existent. So that Paul says that a child, even though he's heir of everything, is under tutors and teachers until the time when the father sets for his adoption. Now that word adoption in the scriptures doesn't mean taking a child that's not yours and making them yours. This word adoption is more the way we adopt a budget. It is to put something into place. And so a child grows up, maybe heir of all things, but he's controlled by people who have authority over him. And then the father sets a time when he comes into his own, into adulthood. Judaism would call that bar mitzvah. We would call that confirmation. When a child becomes an adult in the faith and now is functioning as an adult. At that point, they begin to have status in society. So Jesus takes this child, places him there and says, unless you change your thinking and your behavior and get over this idea of your own significance and become humble like this child, you will not enter into the kingdom. Therefore, this is the one who is greatest in the kingdom. This idea of humility is both an attitude of not taking yourself too seriously, but also not asserting yourself. Scripture talks about Moses being the most meek of men, and people sometimes misunderstand that. Moses very seldom exercised and established his place. He often said, who am I? When they complained that he had led them out, he says, who am I to lead you out? In other words, he was simply obeying the father who had told him what to do. He was not doing this because he was a great man. This notion of pride and having to establish who we are is what the world does. It goes back to Genesis where there was the line of Seth, that called on the name of the Lord, and there was an Enoch there who walked with God and was not, because God took him. And there was another Enoch in the line of Cain, and that one thought of himself as great because his father Cain built a city and named it after him. And so there is the world's way of seeking fame and fortune and place and status and basically making sure people know that. And there's the humility of the kingdom of God where we simply know that when we have done these things, we have simply done what is our duty and we are not having, we don't have anything that we didn't receive from God. So Jesus makes it clear that these, the humble are the ones who are the great 
in the kingdom of God. This humility is something that we should be aware of. Not a fake humility. We really should see ourselves correctly, as the scripture says. Not more highly than we ought, but soberly. In other words, to see ourselves as we really are. And basically, you and I are breathing dirt. Uh, we are, our very life is dependent upon God in that sense. So, Jesus then ends with a dire warning, we'll talk about this with the rest of the text, that anyone who takes advantage of a person who is humble, anyone who takes advantage of a child in that sense, because they are dependent more on you, the strong bear the infirmities of the weak, anyone who abuses that would be better off not to have been born and better off to be drowned in the sea than to allow that offense to take place. So I'm going to stop at that point, and if you have questions about that, this would be the time to discuss that into the other part. So then the scripture picks up at verse 7. Uh, Jesus has just said, whoever offends or stumbles one of these uh, uh, will... Uh, is better off dead. So he says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. So if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better to enter into life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into Gehenna or eternal fire, the lake of fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Um, So this text is basically following up on this idea of offenses. And Jesus says the world is set up to cause spiritual stumbling blocks. It is the world and the flesh and the devil that tempts us, and we are tempted to do damage, and we do damage to ourselves, but we also do damage to others. And so Jesus says um, that, that we are to remove from our life anything that causes us to stumble or to stumble another one. The scripture is pretty clear about this. This is Paul's statement regarding meat, sacrifice to idols. He says, we know that an idol is nothing, but not everyone has that knowledge. One who is weak, one who has knowledge of the idol, sees that as actually sacrifice to an idol. And so he says, if somebody says to you, this meat was sacrificed to an idol, don't eat for conscience sake. Not your conscience, your conscience is clear, but the conscience of the other one. Because you will end up stumbling him. We are not to use our freedom in Christ to be arrogant and proud. We are to use it so that by love we serve one another. Now we tend to do this in, in, even in our culture to some extent. We are trying to be sensitive to words that can uh, be offensive to people. Or situations that can be offensive to people. In the kingdom of heaven, that is a major part of its manifestation. And so, denying yourself, entering into life in sense partial for the sake of others is better than living to yourself and ultimately being rejected 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So I'm going to uh, stop there. All right, again, the children are leading the way here. That's great. Okay, we're going to pick up at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's talking about the humility one or the child here. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now there's a verse in some Bibles, but not in all Bibles, because there's a textual background that says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's found in other places. It's not always found in in the manuscript here. So uh, what Jesus then says is, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And so what Jesus gives us here is a statement following up on that warning not to cause a stumbling in another. But here he says, don't reject them. There is a tendency for us to reject those who can do us no good. And we are not to do that. And so he tells this uh, statement that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this is an odd passage. And for non-Catholics, it's an enigma. This passage seems to indicate that there are angels that are either serving as guardians or monitors of believers, particularly those who are humble and weak. And so the idea is that they will report to the Father how these are treated. You recall Job, the book of Job, where the angels come before God and God says to Satan, where have you been? I've been going to and fro. Now we know what he's going to and fro He's going to and fro to accuse. But the other angels are not there to accuse. They're there to call on the Lord on behalf of those who are being harmed. And therefore he says, don't think God will be unaware of how you treat one of these. He will be aware. Now there are some people whose theology can include angels here. And they think that God's omniscience is sufficient for that. But Jesus specifically uses the possessive, their angels. And so I really think that we have less of an understanding of the angelic watchers that are around that uh, are part of this creation. The scripture says that the angels desire to look upon these things that accompany salvation. And so uh, we're told to be careful how we entertain strangers because we may be entertaining angels without knowing it. So there's a much more here for us to to think about and to know about than often we get in our evangelical experiences of the faith. So, Jesus says uh, that these uh, little ones uh, need to be cared for. And he then gives us a parable, and it's of a man who has a hundred sheep, and one of them strays. This is not 
lost sheep and he's gaining a flock, he has the flock, and within the flock, one is wandering off. And he says he'll leave the flock because generally the flock will stay together. It's the one that's not paying attention that wanders off. And he will leave the flock where it is and he will go and search for that one and bring it back. He's talking not about evangelism. He's talking about restoration of an erring or a wandering brother or sister. The shepherd does not want, the father does not want any of the little ones who believe in him to be lost. They can be damaged by those who oppress them and they can, because of their weakness and their naivete, they can wander off. And our job is to restore them and to seek those lost sheep and bring them back within the fold. And you, if you have been a believer for very long at all, you know that you have been both deceived and wandered off. Uh, Some of us are really straight type sheep. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, I know that uh, very well. And thank God he draws us back. But he also uses us to restore one another, and that's where he's going in the rest of this section. So it's important to understand this passage not as evangelism of going out and seeking the lost. There are plenty of passages for that. But this is about the community of faith and the flock that is together and those who among us are wandering off to, to uh, rejoice when they return rather than be harsh and judgmental of them because often people wander off in their ignorance and in deceit, not out of rebellion. So I'm going to stop there and see if there are any thoughts or questions. Moving on. Okay. So... We now get to a passage that continues in this. Uh, This is not about wandering off. This goes back to the issue of offenses. So in verse 15, he says this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of every... Uh, mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, that means the two or three witnesses, uh, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those were the two categories of people that were not well liked in the assemblies. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Now this passage is a passage that's well understood as church discipline, But you need to understand the process. This process is about the care of that sheep rather than the punishment of that sheep. And you will see that there's three steps before the rejection of that one. So you see your brother sinning. Paul tells us if we see a brother overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual... 
restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, humility. Considering your own self, lest you also be tempted. In other words, I see my brother sinning, uh, and my brother has... uh, Uh, Now, there are some texts that say against you. I don't think this is necessarily just against you. But if someone is caught in sin, you are to go to them privately. You talk to them. You do not bring an accusation against them. You do not uh, attack them in public. You simply go quietly to them and talk to them about what the scripture says and their behavior. And if if he listens to you... The scripture says you have won your brother. There need be no further discussion because that love hides a multitude of sins. But if he will not listen to you, he's going to go further. Then you are to bring two or three witnesses. Now this is not two or three people that agree with you so that the four of you can have an intervention. Okay, that's the culture. Okay. This is two or three people that that brother trusts. He obviously doesn't trust your words. He thinks you're accusing him. So you, you find two or three within the body who that brother trusts and you trust. And you bring them and you tell what you think is going on. And he tells what he thinks is going on. And the two or three then make a judgment. And say, yes, you, are, you need to turn back and come back into Obedience. If he will not listen to them, now it comes to the community. Notice that the dignity of the person is always being protected. And then the church will be told. And the witnesses who heard the stories of the two will be able to say, wait a minute, the story is changing here or something else. And if the church then decides, yes, this is wrong, And he will not listen to the church. Then and only then is that person excommunicated. And that's why the statement is made that when we are gathered there in his name, the Lord is in the midst. You will recall in 1 Corinthians this happened. A man had sinned. The church was not dealing with it. It had become so open that the world knew about it. And so Paul says... I have told you, when you gather and I am with you in spirit, you deliver this one over to Satan. You're treating him as a publican and a sinner. Now, not as a republican and a sinner, okay? Uh, But as a publican and a sinner. In other words, you treat them as an outsider because they are acting like an outsider. The purpose of even this is, one, to protect the community but also to allow the Lord to bring that one back. And we see in 2 Corinthians that this man came back and Paul said, now restore him lest he have sorrow beyond measure. In other words, the idea of this is always the purpose of reconciliation, not punishment. Punishment is the Lord's doing, not our doing. So I'm going to stop at that one at verse 20. And see if there are any... When we treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, we are not treating them as an enemy. We are treating them as not part of the community. Now, somebody who's not part of the community, we don't spend our time judging. 
Paul says, you, we don't judge those who are outside. We judge those who are inside. Having moved them out, he's outside of our condemnation about that behavior. But we no longer let him associate with us to indicate that he is bearing the name of Christ. And therefore, if he is hungry, we still feed him. And if he's thirsty, we still give him something to drink, as we would anybody who is outside the community. But we do not treat them as a brother in the sense of full fellowship. But yeah, it's not, it's not punitive. It's protecting the body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And it also delivers that one over so that his soul may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, once you're outside, and I know this, you guys know this from my testimony. When I, I didn't wait for the church to kick me out, I left. You can't fire me, I quit, you know, right? And I went into my rebellion, and God, as that good shepherd, followed me and brought me back, okay? Um, I was out from under the community where the community could enable and protect me, and God had a direct shot at bringing me back. And that's what the scripture tells us. If they go out and God does not punish them, it's because they're not a child uh, of God. That's Hebrews. So it's important to keep in mind that when we treat someone like a non-believer, we don't treat non-believers bad. The danger for us is to treat believers who are sinning worse than we treat non-believers, right? And so this, is, this puts them in an equal status there. Any others? Yes, Okay, so the issue is private sin versus public sin. Scripture's pretty clear about that, that some men's sins are known, and other men's sins follow them. Um, we're, not, we're generally not to be looking for people's sins. Uh, but the Scripture's pretty clear, be sure your sin will find you out. I, I honestly believe that often God gives us space to repent. So that it won't be public. Um, I think had I in the early days of my rebellion. uh, Heeded the warnings of God. uh, I would not have had the public humiliation. And um, uh, level of uh, regret that I currently hold. Uh, But I'm one of those stubborn sheep. Um, and so, uh, but even then, I believe that the whole issue of the car accident and everything of God bringing me back was a love tap, not a punishment. Because the proof of that is from that day on, I have struggled to stay in the community and not, not rebel from it. As Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So I think that private sins... Uh, if you're aware of them, you, that's really part of that. Keep it between you and him. Uh, uh, but the, but the, this is also where the elders can be helpful. Uh, because as a general rule, the elders will keep what's, um, what's discussed among them to them. And so it, it maintains as much as we can a person's dignity. Because if they repent in the process, then we should not bring that up again. Which is where we're going with the rest of this text. Any any other? Uh, yes. Yeah. So here's the deal: How do we treat people that aren't part of our community? If we know that they are making a claim of 
lordship, and they are grossly not living it. Notice the word grossly rather than subtly, because we can be we can be pretty judgmental as people. If it's if it's overt, then the Bible says we're to mark them. In other words, we're to indicate that's a person in that condition for ourselves, and we are not to associate with them, right? So there are members of my family and members from churches I know have been disciplined that I maintain some distance from, uh, simply because if I am interacting with them generally, people are going to assume that we're in full fellowship. Uh, if they happen to be somewhere where I am, you know, I go to see a movie and they're there to see a movie, I'm going to say, I'm going to treat them like a Gentile and a, and a tax collector, right? In other words, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily sit with them, but I'm not leaving the theater because they're in the theater. So I think we need to, we, we need to keep this, this is predominantly, this immediate fellowship is predominantly in the household and in the congregation. Uh, now, it extends in denominational life when the denomination has made a statement. So, for example, if a denomination has put a minister or a church under uh, this kind of discipline, then those who are part of that denomination should certainly uh, ad- adhere to it. But, but our job, remember, is not to see who we can reject our job is to see who we can restore. So that, that's really important. All right, are we, are we running? Okay, so let's pick it up at, because uh, i got to get done here. Uh, let's pick it up at 15. Sorry, at 21. So Peter comes and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? Now, we're into personal stuff, right? And I forgive him seven times. So Peter is wanting to know where the limit is, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, Jesus is not saying at 491 you can nail him, okay? He, he's using a statement that basically says this is unlimited. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Significant amount, but nothing compared to what he had owed, right? And he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. When the fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now this is really serious, ground-level Jesus teaching. At that cross, our sins, which were many, were forgiven. And we begged him to forgive us. How much arrogance does it take for someone who's been forgiven to be unforgiving to someone who has hurt him? Now, what Peter's talking about, if my brother sins against me and he repents and I restore him, and he does it again, and he repents, and I restore him, and he does it again, and he repents, and I restore him, how long do I have to put up with that? So let me ask you a question. How many times has God had to put that up with you? I tend to go to God daily to ask for forgiveness. So... There's nobody who has been able to offend or sin against me at the level that I have sinned against the Father. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God says, If you really understand my forgiveness... You will be forgiving. Now notice this one guy doesn't. So what do we do then? Do we go after him? No. You will notice that the fellow servants call upon the Lord to say this person is being unforgiving. And it is the Lord who deals with him. Okay. So again, it's not us being punitive. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is not our judge, our, our position to be punitive to each other. We may have to remove somebody because they're disruptive. But then we seek their restoration. As we would hope that the rest of us would seek our restoration if we wandered away or we got caught in a habitual sin. And so this is really important. And you'll notice it all ties in to your attitude about yourself. A person who's very humble, it's very hard to offend them. A person who is arrogant is easily offended. We have a culture now where everybody is offended no matter what anybody does. And it's because we are raising a generation to be full of themselves. And not humble. And therefore everything offends them. You'll never be close to someone who's easily offended. Because they will find something that you do that they don't like. But a person who doesn't think of themselves as significant. Is not going to be offended. Because they are not looking at your behavior through their pride. They're looking at your behavior through their gratitude for the forgiveness that they have experienced. So we remember the story of the Pharisee when the woman was washing Jesus' feet. And he said if he knew what kind of a sinner she was, 
she, he wouldn't let her touch him. And he said, Simon, you see this woman? Since I came in, she has not stopped to wash my feet with her tears. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. You've done nothing like that. The one who has been forgiven much is the one who loves much. If you find it hard to love others, it may be because there's some arrogance in you that allows you to focus more on you than on others. And this teaching is specifically for that. So humility is a kingdom attitude. And we're to bear the infirmities of the weak. And this characteristic manifests the kingdom of God before it comes. And it's important for us to see this because in the next chapter, Jesus is going to talk about disruptions like divorce and like uh, the, the deceitfulness of riches. So we'll talk about that at that point. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll do a real quick Q&A if uh, there are some questions.